This is Teaching While White. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denebi. So in this episode, we're going to start to tackle what is a very polarizing topic, tracking, otherwise called ability-based groupings or leveling. In our book, we looked at some of the ways segregation has remained intact even after schools were theoretically desegregated, and the most obvious way has been through tracking. National data from the Civil Rights Data Collection show that Black, Latinx, and Indigenous students are not enrolled in AP courses at the same rates as white and Asian students. And even when they attend schools with similar AP course availability, they experience less success. To add to the concern, the more AP courses a school offers, the more the enrollment and success gaps persist or become even more pronounced. We wanted to dig into this a little because we know that white students are not just naturally more gifted and talented, and black and brown students are not less than, and certainly the color of one's skin has nothing to do with intelligence. So Jenna spoke with Kevin Wellner to find out more about this racial disparity in tracking. He's a white male professor in the School of Education at the University of Colorado Boulder, and he directs the National Education Policy Center. He specializes in educational policy and law and is the author of several books, including co-editor with Prudence Carter of Closing the Opportunity Gap, What America Must Do to Give Every Child an Even Chance. We started by trying to define the term tracking and looking at the history of where it even came from. So you will see people quibble over the use of different terms and trying to distinguish between them. Uh, overseas, the term streaming is used more, more commonly. Um, here we hear primarily the terms ability grouping and tracking. And there's a distinction that some people draw between them, sometimes focusing on the rigidity of tracking versus the flexibility of ability grouping. So in the old days, the tracking systems were fairly rigid with the uh, school administrators and teachers making decisions about which uh, classes students would be in. And once they were placed in a given track, that would carry across all the different subject areas. Nowadays, most systems are subject specific, and most systems include include an element of choice in the sense that families or, or students can, can uh, ask to be in higher tracks or ask to be in lower tracks. Um, I should note, and this I think this is particularly important, um, researchers have looked at whether there is a practical difference when choice is brought into the system. In other words, do we see the patterns change uh, in terms of race and ethnicity and uh, students' uh, family wealth? And they don't. You see the same patterns, whether it's the teachers and administrators saying, uh, go in this class or go in that class, versus the students and parents choosing. And we could discuss why that is. It's probably not too surprising, um, given the context that we know these decisions take place in. And then the history of, of tracking is, is also worth noting. Schooling in America and, and globally used to be um, the province of the more elite. Um, and a lot of families never considered the possibility of their children going to school. As more children were brought into the schools, particularly with child labor laws um, taking effect, schools needed to respond to this, this influx of kids who they ex never had expected to teach. 
And that response oftentimes was tied to a variety of uh, expectations and class stratification, racial stratification. So if I'm running a school and students come into the school who I don't think of as uh, likely or even possibly going to college later on, then I'm going to structure a different uh, experience for those students. And so that happened with the uh, influx of Southern and Eastern European immigrants. It happened post-Brown versus Board of Education. It happened in uh, 1975 after the predecessor to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act took effect. So as you had students come in from working class families or from um, the the Black African-American community or students with special needs, schools responded in pretty much the same way each time, saying, oh, okay, well, we have to educate these kids now, but we shouldn't be we shouldn't be putting them in academic classes that's not right for them right. so there is a there is a huge class and racial overlay to the history of tracking and that even the way i described it doesn't even get into the ugliest stuff which you know gets into blatant racism and eugenics and that sort of thing we see the gaps in measured achievement, however we choose to measure that, showing up as early as we start to measure kids. So certainly three, four, five-year-olds, when they're entering a school, formal schooling, and we're looking to see, are they prepared to learn? So some, some students are already reading at that age. Some students are already doing rudimentary math. There are various uh, study skill sets or attention sets that are measured. And we see a lot of the same gaps, pretty much the same gaps, showing up at those very young ages. Certainly when we start the formal testing in third grade, we're already seeing um, those gaps. And the, the achievement gaps that we measure, of course, are measuring opportunity gaps. Um, and those opportunity gaps in our society are highly tied to parental education, parental wealth, um, race, racism. Uh, racialized poverty, um, concentrated poverty, all, all these these larger societal ills that we um, we think of as inequality and racism are impacting kids' opportunities to learn from the very outset, from the time the parent the mother is, is pregnant. Um, and we as a society don't do much to address those inequalities. And in fact, we do a lot of things to exacerbate those inequalities. So we have a situation where kids are arriving in school with opportunity gaps already there, already pretty stark in some cases, and already manifesting in terms of children's preparation to learn. Schools can choose to respond to that in a variety of ways. Um, They could provide a lot of supports for kids who need them and early interventions and or, and I think it's possible to do both, and or they can respond by sorting the kids and saying, okay, well, these kids are very prepared to learn and we're going to make sure they get a really enriching, challenging education to respond to their preparation. And these kids over here are not as prepared to learn and they're probably not going to even end up going to college, et cetera, right? So all those same same factors that we could think of historically as playing out are still playing out in other ways um, in terms of 
what former President George Bush called the soft bigotry of low expectations, right? Um, and so when schools do that, when they um, respond to children's needs, that's oftentimes felt in a day-to-day way as a type of caring, as a type of responsiveness that says, well, we want to make sure that we're not discouraging kids. We want to make sure we're giving kids what they need at this particular time. And that's the soft bigotry element, right? That's the, because if you think about what that means, it means that we're not challenging and supporting the kids enough so that they're going to have the opportunities in life that we want them to have. No educator is going into education with the purpose of harming, right? And it's this belief that we're meeting kids where they are, that we don't want to make it so frustrating that they drop out. And we often talk about the expectation gap. Uh, You have mentioned the opportunity gap. We certainly talk about opportunity gaps, but the expectation gap. And when you talk about the history, that just makes so much sense, right? That it's embedded in this very system that we're still working within. Yeah. And of course, the best way... And we oftentimes don't expressly say this, but the best way to um, provide um, for these children is to address those larger inequalities, right? To address the racism, to address the racialized poverty, to address marginalization in general, um, and to provide strong supports for families and communities and children, you know, from pregnancy from pregnancies through high school, right? And then we don't have to turn to schools to play this ridiculous great equalizer role um, that says, well, we don't, we don't, I mean, the great equalizer myth is, is grounded in this idea that we could abuse children and their families and their communities throughout life. As long as we provide them with a really great schooling experience, everything's going to be okay. Um, And, and that's, it's, it's immoral, but it's also illogical, right? We can't, our schools can't play that big of a role. Um, school students, no matter how rich a schooling experience is, um, need, need opportunities and safety outside of school as well. When we try to be caring in a way that is coddling, you know, that is, that is not pushing students to, to meet higher expectations, but instead just lowers those expectations and says, oh, everything's going to be all right. Um, it's not going to be all right uh, if we provide some students with much richer opportunities to learn than other students. And then, of course, the implicit message is the old belief, right, that students of color are somehow less intelligent, less capable, and that just gets reinforced again and again. Yeah, or a lot of it is, you know, the focusing not so much on the color, but on the culture, right? That, well, their, their communities aren't going to support them. Their families aren't going to support them. They don't have the right values, right? There's, there's so much bigotry embedded in those, in those decisions about expectations. The way that schools respond to the differences that kids bring to school so often is a rich get richer, poor get poorer response. Um, And I think that that's really important because if we want the schools to play an equitable role, that's the death knell to equity, right? If we respond to differences by providing more for the students who already are doing well and less for the students that are struggling, 
um, we are going to end up with widening gaps. This whole rich get richer, the studies show, right, that at lower level track, lower tracks, there are less experienced teachers, there are less enriched curriculum. Do you want to say more about that? In what way is the poor getting poor in that scenario? You know, the, the research on detracking shows that it benefits the students who would otherwise be in the low-track classes and, and has little or no effect on the students who would be in higher-track classes. But parents of students who would be in those higher-track classes in a track system are, are concerned that their students are not going to be challenged, are not going to be provided with, with rich opportunities to learn after uh, tracking is eliminated. And their students deserve to be uh, challenged and to have those rich opportunities to learn just like every child does. And so there's a legitimate set of concerns that that, te- that parents bring to these debates. Um, and one of the very concrete concerns that they have is that they will lose access to the best teachers. Um, because in tracked systems, it's not just the students who are tracked, it's the teachers who are tracked. The teachers with more experience in particular tend to be assigned more high-track classes. And so we could end up with, and we oftentimes do end up with, more privileged teachers uh, also seeking to maintain tracking and to maintain their high-track classes. And I think that the places that I've seen do detracking will recognize the concerns that parents in particular bring to the process and collect good data and present good analyses to the community, uh, to the broad community, um, to show how well students are doing. And one of the benefits that all kids get, including kids who would otherwise be in high-track classes, is that uh, detracking reforms, when done well, change the way that classes are taught. They don't just resort students. And one of the things, I'm sort of going in a circle here, but hopefully this will all come together. One of the things that um, we know from research into tracking is that the classes that we oftentimes think of as homogeneous, as, well, this is a low-track class, this is a medium-track class, this is a high-track class, and all the medium-track kids are in the medium-track class, right? Um, And what we see is that there's a tremendous level of of measured diversity in those tracked classes. So if you are looking at, for example, uh, reading test scores in language arts tracking, you would find that in the high-track class, there are students with fairly low reading test scores. And in the low-track class, there are students with fairly high reading test scores. And so a teacher who who approaches those classes and thinks they could just be the sage on the stage talking in front of the class and assuming that everyone is at the same point, that teacher is in fact teaching a fairly heterogeneous class and not recognizing or responding to, to that heterogeneity. When you detrack and and respond to those differences and recognize that you have those differences in the class, that comes with a a set of changes in how the how the classes are taught. And those changes are the same types of changes we've been trying to get teachers to engage in for all teaching, right? To make the classes more constructivist, to make them more project-based, to make them more engaging, to make them more differentiated, and to you know individualize for students no matter what the assumption is about who's in the class. And when that's done, all students benefit. 
right? So what we've, you know, the, the district I've most closely studied is in uh, Long Island, at Southside High School in uh, Rockville Center. And we have consistently found that the, high, the higher track kids, the kids who would otherwise be in those high track classes, um, have done extraordinarily well, much better than they would have done if they were uh, in a track system. And that's because the school made these, this broad set of changes. talking about detracking gets so important that the fear for the high level kids that's where where the anxiety comes right um, but what happens to a student who's tracked in a lower class there's research about that too right what's the impact on students who are consistently put in the lowest level track yeah. what, what happens well that's the poor get poorer part of the equation right so um, my colleague uh, Jeannie Oaks and I studied four different school districts. We had data from those school districts that was very detailed. And we looked at slices, 10 different slices of prior measured achievements. So the lowest slice would be from zero to 10 and the highest would be from 90 to 91 to 100. And we looked at students within those slices, focusing in particular on race and ethnicity. So we were looking at, at Latinx and African-American students uh, depending on the school district, in those slices compared to white or Asian uh, students. And what we found was that consistently similarly scoring students were placed up or down in a, predictive, in, in a predictable way based on race. So white and Asian students or Asian American students were placed more likely to be placed up and African-American and Latinx students were more likely to be placed down. And then we looked at the next year. What happens once students are placed up or down? We, we looked across, I think the data set allowed us to look over a four-year period. And you saw that pattern take place. And the, one, the students who were placed down just fell further and further down. We speak sometimes in terms of a tournament, tournament model. So think here like a, a chess tournament with a winners and losers bracket. Uh, or the College World Series does the same thing, right? So if, if you're in the winners bracket, you just have to win you just win once to keep in the winner's bracket. If you lose, then you fall down to the loser's bracket, and then you have to fight your way back up. That's the same thing we see with, with uh, track systems, that once you fall out of the high track system or the higher track, it's harder to work your way back up. Right? So once you, once you fall down, you can get back up to the high track, but it's really difficult. Um, it's much easier if you're, if you're already starting in that high track. So what we're seeing in, in these data is, uh, what we're seeing throughout all, all these studies is that low track placement is associated with lower expectations, watered down curriculum, ration the best curriculum for some reason for only some students, right? You deny the best curriculum for the students in the lower track. And when you deny those opportunities to learn, students just like the rest of us learn when they have opportunities to learn. And when those opportunities are richer, we learn more. And when the opportunities are watered down, we learn less. And that's, that's tracking in a nutshell. And what does it do to self-perception, I wonder, for those students? How do they start to see themselves as learners and students? Yeah, um, the expectations that are structured into a tracked system are picked up not just by the students, but by the teachers. I mean, I can't count the number of times that 
I was told by a teacher before observing a low track class, don't expect anything from these students. You know, just my, my goal for this class, I remember one teacher told me, my goal, my goal for this class is to keep them from hurting each other. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, I mean, it's the expectations are internalized by the teachers and by the students. And I think that's completely predictable. It's, it's human, right? So if you create a structure that says, here's the low expectation room, then people are, who are in that room are going to think this is the low expectation room. talk about those high expectation kids and you talked about it's reasonable for parents to be afraid that their kids are going to lose out or um, they're going to have teachers that aren't as as good as they need to be or lose the enriched curriculum that they're hoping for. But I also wonder how much, again, I don't think this is conscious necessarily, but we need a bottom in order for there to be a top, right? And I and I think about how parents are very concerned about where their kids are going to go to college and how they're going to be competitive to get into those schools. And I just wonder how much that drives this whole conversation. Because as you said, the studies show that it's really not benefiting those high, higher level students anyway, that detracking actually is best for everybody. So could you just talk some more about that? Academically, tracking doesn't hurt high-track students. And there are some benefits that are associated with high-track classes. There are peer effects. There are, as you said, the assignment to high-track teachers, right? The teachers who are more experienced. It's comforting that when we look at the empirical results, we don't see those students um, being harmed by detracking. And part of that is that we... You know, if you want to make sense out of that, um, why that is, part of it is explained by what I was just pointing out, that when done well, detracking enriches the type of teaching taking place. But a big part of that is that our opportunities to learn in life are more determined by these outside school factors than by factors that take place inside the schools. So when we parse, when, when we look at what's driving outcomes, we see only about one third of the, of the outcomes being driven by differences in what takes place in schools. So think here about teacher experience and that sort of thing. Even if tracking isn't carried out in a way that is ideal, if, if your kid is successful, that success is, is, is largely being determined by things um, that are outside the school anyway, right? Um, and that we, we tend to obsess and worry so much about these differences in schools because we want to make sure, as you say, that our, our kids are competitive for, for college, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to be able to say is every school that does detracking is going to do it well and it's going to be a boon for your kid too. Putting on my parent hat, what I would say is, is monitor it. Um, spend some time in the school. Talk to the teachers. If you see things that look like the, the challenge of your kid's class is being watered down, talk to the teachers. Talk to the principal. Um, it's okay to do that. I mean, hopefully with, in an understanding way. What it's not okay to do is to demand a system where your child is getting an advantage because you're denying an advantage to another, to another child. 
I don't think we have to condemn a parent for advocating for a child. Even if we're inclined to do that, I think we have to accept the fact that parents are going to advocate for their own children. What I would hope parents do is advocate for all children as well. And what I think we as a society and a school system need to do is to make sure that we are designing a system that doesn't encourage or even facilitate stratification because parents are advocating for their children. And what that means in large part is making sure that opportunities for all kids are there so that it's not um, a win-lose situation for kids. Let's talk about detracking, though, and detracking successfully and what that, what that might look like and what, what should we be advocating for, in your opinion? I want to start off by stressing the importance of addressing opportunity gaps at early ages. Right. So a student identified as being behind grade level in math or reading in particular should be provided with intense interventions uh, that would accompany and support a high expectations curriculum from the very outset. Uh, this is what Carol Burris and I call universal acceleration. But you can think about it as a form of early detracking. I also think it's important to stress that the most sensible way of addressing tracking is by addressing poverty and racism and racialized poverty in larger society. A sensible and humane system doesn't abuse children in their communities and their families and then turn to schools to be the great equalizer to somehow make everything okay. Um, but even if a school district doesn't address opportunity gaps at early ages, and even if the school doesn't have uh, extra resources um, to have all those intense early interventions I mentioned, Detracking reforms are beneficial, and resources can be reallocated to create small support classes, also known as pre-teach, post-teach classes, uh, or double-up classes. Expectations can be in, uh, increased in terms of quality, even if quantity or coverage suffers a bit for in a differentiated classroom. So you focus on changing the how, but not the what. I recommend there's a book by Carol Burris and Delia Garrity called Detracking for Excellence and Equity that really walks through a lot of what the nuts and bolts of going about detracking in a way that helps all students. No matter what's done, students will always enter classrooms with differences. What tracking does is it, it reifies those differences. It, it labels uh, kids and labels classes and then creates structures to reinforce the differences. So part of that reinforcing involves um, denying lower track children the school's best curriculum. But another part is what I mentioned earlier, the, um, the, the labels themselves get internalized by students and their teachers. So one of, one of the things that detracking does is it, it removes that structural barrier. I think about, you know, how do we fix systems as opposed to fixing kids? Um, to so in some way, those early interventions still isn't about fixing kids. I think that's important to name, that it's really about fixing a system that allowed that kid to walk in with less opportunity to learn prior to that moment. So you mentioned before you're a parent. I just wonder how you navigated this for your own children. When my child was born and through elementary school, we lived in a small mountain town. So it was like literal two-room schoolhouse. Um, so there was no tracking whatsoever there. Uh, it was multi-age grouping. Uh, and then when we moved, we made sure to have small schools uh, where, where, again, we could avoid that. 
you know, it's a, there's a form of privilege in what I was able to do, um, and that I was able to find, you know, to be cognizant of that, to know what to avoid, um, and to be able to access an environment that doesn't have um, what I consider to be this this poisonous element in the school. Um, but not every parent is going to be able to to do that. Um, and when you're when you're a parent, and the only way to access the challenge for your kid is to access the high track class, it's perfectly sensible for you to be doing that. I just hope you'd also be looking for ways to keep to make the system more equitable for everyone. So if I'm a white parent, my kid is doing great. They're in the high level tract. Why why do I care about this? Um, in terms of your your own child's immediate self interest, you don't. You're able to, you know, opportunity hoard perfectly fine within the current system, and there's no reason to upset the apple cart. Um, but if you are someone who sees schools as a foundational element of a fair and democratic society, I think you need you need to understand tracking as a foundational element of an unfair and undemocratic society and work to change it. That was Kevin Wellner, professor at the School of Education at the University of Colorado Boulder and director of the National Education Policy Center. So Jenna, as I listen to the interview, it's really striking to me how there continues to be this persistent opportunity gap and this inequitable distribution of funding and support and all the pathways for student participation and success, it's just unfair. And then the more advanced classes you offer, sort of worse the opportunity gap gets. And so it's just sort of that cumulative impact. So it's by design, really, because even though we have technically desegregation, we're seeing segregation through leveling, tracking, and that is by design. That's on purpose. And it it also makes me just think about Why are we rationing the best curriculum? When he says that, I get sort of a pit in my stomach. We're rationing the best curriculum. Like, if we know what the best curriculum is, why are some students worthy of that and some students are not? Yes, and it also makes me think about this notion of that the teachers are tracked just as the students are. And I don't think we often talk enough about that, that the students who need the most support are often getting the teachers with the least experience. So... It's, it's doubly impacting not just the students, but the instruction as well. So it makes me also think that it's, it's not really about the students. It's that, you know, when he talks about how teachers are asking for those classes, right? They want those classes because they think they're the high flyers or whatever term they're using. And it's the parents. The parents and the teachers are driving the decision. And it's not about the needs of the students because Students who need the most are getting the most watered-down curriculum and the least experienced teachers. So it's not really about what students need at all. It's about what the adults want to do. And we're not even thinking about the incredible sort of monetary value of this advanced curriculum of having access to to these AP courses. It's college credit. It can mean money for students. It's about preparation with advanced skills. So again, in the name of supposedly helping students, we're actually just creating greater opportunity gaps and really not serving children and giving them access to all these amazing opportunities that they all should have access to. 
It's a super complicated issue to unpack and to figure out, but it's not impossible. And some schools are really doing amazing work to detrack and to see how that impacts all students. And the other important point that I think he makes is that students in the higher track classes, there's obviously some benefits, but it's not as pronounced as they make it sound. It's actually not a detriment to those students to be tracked with everybody else or put in a class with everybody else. Right. So those students who are in the higher track classes have the benefit of being with other students who have similar access to all of these opportunities. And for the students in the lower tracked classes, they're just being further underserved. So even putting them into those classes to, to quote unquote help them is actually not meeting their needs and is not helping to increase their skills. The students in the higher track classes the the benefit they receive is not that big, right? And so the fighting that all these adults are, you know, tooth and nail to get their students in those classes, actually the benefit to them is not that great. That's that's the shocking part to me. It's like, it it's not a harm to those students to detract. So because this topic is so critical, we are going to devote a couple more episodes to this notion of tracking. We're gonna have the opportunity to talk to some more experts in the field, as well as visit a classroom where the teachers have made a commitment to detracking their grade level. This episode was sponsored by Ested and produced by Stephen Smith. Our theme music was written and performed by Henry Needham. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to spread the word and check us out on teachingwhilewhite.org. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And this is Teaching While White. 